Welcome to the Pin to Profit Podcast. This show is the fiction author's one-stop shop for all things writing, from pinning captivating prose to the nitty-gritty of grammar to tips, tricks, and insider advice on marketing to turn your passion for writing into cold, hard cash. Because the only thing better than writing the next great American novel is making a fortune doing it. Am I right? With our guidance, you'll be raking in book sales faster than a cheetah on roller skates chasing a squirrel with a winning lottery ticket. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get ready to go on a rollicking ride into the realm of writing riches. Because the Pin to Profit podcast starts now. All right, and we are live. Welcome again, guys, to another episode of the Pen to Profit podcast. I am your friendly neighborhood copy editor and writing consultant, Ray Evans, and I am joined with a really, really special guest today. <clears throat> Tracy Lydia Gardner is an international best-selling author of 18 books, as well as a speaker, writing coach, and dynamic course creator. She writes fiction and nonfiction depicting African-Americans triumphant, triumphing over adversity and meeting success, whether that be in love or life pursuits. Tracy loves public speaking, teaching workshops, and talking about her craft at every opportunity. She is the creator of Gardner Solutions, LLC, coaching new and aspiring writers through finishing the book and the publishing process, as well as helping people with disabilities reach their independent living goals. Tracy holds a BS in communications and resides outside the DC metropolitan area with her family. So Tracy, do you want to say hello to the Pen to Profit audience? And can you tell us uh, what your favorite book is and why? Yes. Hello to the Pen to Profit audience. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, Ray. Um, yeah, one of my favorite books is Write It Down, Make It Happen by Henriette Ann Costner. Um, it's a wonderful book. Um, it, she visits with all these stories about people who wrote things down and even people who forgot about them, almost like a vision board, but just writing things down. And after a while, soon it will be happening. Um, and I really hope to write a book like that too one day but I just I try to read that book at least once every couple of years just because it's such a wonderful motivating uh, book to kind of revisit oh wow awesome I'm definitely gonna, I've never I've actually never heard of that one I think I'm gonna write that down I'm gonna pick it up and read it myself a uh, uh, real soon in the near future all right so I always do a bit of extensive uh, research on all of my guests before they come on. So, and I do seems like you're like a, a disability advocate. So I, I kind of wanted to start there. So I guess uh, I want to ask you, so can you explain a little bit uh, what kind of disability it is that you have and when you first realized that you had it or when you were diagnosed with it? Sure, of course. I have no trouble talking about my disability. It's been with me for uh over 45 years, I was diagnosed at age two years old with a form of muscular dystrophy called spinal muscular atrophy or SMA. And, uh, you know, muscular dystrophy, most of them make your muscles weaker, weaker over time. So I was trying to stand and get up and walk around, just kept falling down. So I had a biopsy when I was two years old and um, they discovered that I had muscular dystrophy and 
One thing I'll say is that um, I've had a long time to adapt to it, but you know, I'm an advocate because in advocating for myself and the things that I wanted around transportation and employment and you know, adequate health care, I just found that there are so many other people who also need a voice and might not have been able to get out, or our voices are often multiple, you know, marginalized. And um, that's really how I got into it. And I just love speaking. So if I'm going to speak about books and writings that I need and I'm going to, you know, have a platform, then I want to draw attention to the plight of us as people with disabilities also. Wow. Awesome. So it kind of sounds like, uh, like you said, you use like your platform to uh, like to advocate for people who might not uh, be able to do so for themselves. I think that that's really admirable. That's actually pretty interesting. So um, I was actually uh, snooping on your Amazon page earlier, and it looks like uh, you've been writing for quite a while. Uh, according to what's listed for the works that are listed on your page, it looks like your first one was published sometime around uh, January of of 2003. And I was just thinking to myself, like, where was I back in 2003? <laughs> I was actually a, uh, that would have been my junior year in high school back then. Not trying to say you're old. I just feel you have a, you have a lot okay. of experience <laughs> and wisdom. So could you uh, walk me back? Could you like walk us through like how you transitioned, uh, you know, uh, actually into like uh, writing stories initially? Like what yeah, were you doing definitely. before you started writing? Yeah, of course. So I started right. I've always been a writer. I remember even a story in elementary school and the teacher like disliked one of my characters because his name was Nincompoop. And she had to type his name over and over again. I can't even remember the story, but I just remembered her being like, wow, I had to type nincompoop a lot. And I really, it got on my nerves. So I have been writing and, you know, contributing to newsletters at school, yearbook and all that um, since I was a child. But in in uh, college, and um, I'm actually not that old, thank you very much. My first book actually came out when I was 23. So I entered a writing contest and uh, was failing in school, um, was getting rejected in relationships sometimes. And I said, you know, and I couldn't understand math to save my life. So I had a, I flunked math for liberal arts, which is supposed to be the math for the people who don't like math. But I failed that class and I had to take it over. And every time I was in class, I'd be writing on the back of a um, eight and a half by 11 notebook paper. And I would disappear from my teacher in my mind to the worlds that I would build. So when I, at 23, 24, when I entered the writing contest, I actually won. I got a trip to New York. I got an advance, a monetary advance, publication of the book, of course, for winning the contest. And the contest was being held by a reputable publishing company. I think that's key for anybody who wants to enter contests. They are wonderful ways to get your foot in the door. But I won that contest and, you know, it really changed my life. Um, I tell almost every uh, interview that I'm on about this, but I'll never stop telling that story just because I was failing miserably in my academics. The only class I was passing was creative writing. And, you know, maybe like, um, you know, any other class that was really easy, like, I don't know, orientation or something. But um, when I returned after being validated for my win, I my grades improved because I found something that I was good at. 
And that can really make a difference in young people's life. If you see young people erring and messing up and having bad grades, they need something that's going to motivate them and it's going to bleed over into other aspects of their life. And that's what happened to me. I was just like, what am I going to do? And I really prayed too. I prayed that something would open up. I got another bad grade. I had another crying spell about my math class and I just needed to change, change the trajectory. And that contest, uh, I really felt like I was going to win. I didn't tell anybody, but I felt like I was going to win in my heart because I was like, this is for me. And so I just entered it and everything changed when I won. And I was just, I was recognized for something. When I felt bad at everything, I was recognized as something that I, that was good. That was good for me and that other people thought I was good at. And that's really important for people. Oh, wow. And you know, I can totally relate to the uh, uh, liberal arts student failing math. I, I did the same thing when I was in college. So when you said that, I was like, wow, like I'm not the only one out there. <laughs> Seems like they should get rid of it, the liberal arts types. I'm just saying. I agree. We, everyone has a calculator. We have them on like our phones and our yeah. smartwatches. They don't really like need to take a math class anymore. Right. If I were president of the world, that's what I would do. I would just like, well, thank you. Math I'll vote for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so that was interesting. So yeah, so kind of like what I'm understanding is that that contest that was kind of like almost like the impetus for you to to kind of like that was like the sign that you needed to basically pursue writing like full time. Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, I do still um, do my advocacy work. I do still have a job, but I'm every other opportunity I get, I am writing and publishing my books. I will never stop. I want to publish a hundred books. I'm only at twenty. But, you know, I can't wait to get to 50. I think I'm going to get to 25, maybe by the end of this year, because I also have an anthology that I'm putting together that I'm inviting other people with disabilities to contribute to. So I'm hoping that I will get to at least 25, either this year or early 2025. Nice. So uh, in my uh, background research, it looks like you've done a uh, some traditional publishing and uh, self-publishing as well. Uh, the majority of the listeners of the show, I almost said readers, but this is obviously audio. So they're listeners. <laughs> uh, the listeners of my show are predominantly uh, self-publishing authors. So mm -hmm. I was wondering uh, with your like unique background, having been on both sides, could you go over uh, some of what you perceive as the pros and cons of traditional publishing and self-publishing, you know, like the, the upsides and the downsides to both? Yeah, definitely. I think that um, it really depends. It comes all back to what you want. When you really decide what you want, um, then you'll know which path. So if you want to be on the New York Times or maybe the USA Today bestseller list and you only want to write, I would say that a traditional contract uh, book deal is for you because if you don't desire any entrepreneurial spirit, you don't want to wear a bunch of different hats. If you don't want to be responsible for cover design or at least finding people to cover design, you know, finding editors, finding a marketing department. If you know you are not an entrepreneur, then a traditional contract is for you. But the third thing, in addition to, you know, where you want to be, what do you want your income to be? The personality thing is, are you able to crank out the books? You know, most of us really, most people who aren't disciplined in writing every day, which I don't, um, they don't really realize that when you get a book deal, you get a book deal for two and three books at a time. If you have a series, you can get a book deal for even more than that. And 
those books are going to have about a year apart schedule to be due. And sadly, and there's nothing wrong with this because this is a business model, even though it seems uh, a little callous, but they don't care if your mom died. They don't care if you got some kind of illness. You're contractually obligated to submit your titles and your manuscript when it is outlined in your contract. And, you know, while that is a wonderful, invigorating thing, it can be hard. And I'm not saying there's not a little bit of wiggle room, but I had felt the pressure when it was time to submit that second book. I had a contract for three books total, and then I started self-publishing. So I have been on both sides, as you mentioned. Now, if you are an entrepreneur, you like doing marketing, you like having control, you like finding a cover designer, hiring people on Fiverr, managing a lot of different personalities. I do have a team. I don't, you know, um, I have an editor who's freelance. I have cover designers that I hire myself, um, but I have to manage them. And if I don't like the cover, I can't get, you know, the, the company to say, hey, I don't like the cover, fire him. You know, I'm going to be the one who has to fire them and kind of let them down. Like, this isn't really hitting what I had in my original vision. And that was the hardest part for me because I actually went through that. I had someone design a cover. I felt like breaking out into a cold sweat trying to tell them I didn't like this cover and I ended up, you know, wasting like $300 because I had to pay for it. I couldn't say no. Um, you know, and first of all, it was a bad cover designer anyway. It was a bad, someone who was doing like a favor and wasn't really in the industry. So didn't know what covers fit the market. And so that was a bad choice too. You're going to waste money as a self-publisher. You're going to make errors and you're going to lose money on your return on investment. And there's relatively no upfront cost when you traditional publish. But when you self-publish, you have all the upfront costs. So to publish a book for me costs anywhere from $2,000 you know, to $3,500. That includes cover design, the editor, um, getting the ISBNs, doing the formatting. I use Vellum, which is a Mac um, software program to format books. There's a lot of things and you don't have to pay for any of that. They give you money just to finish the book in a traditional contract. So those are some of the pros and cons. You just really got to know what you want and know what you um, would like to do and know where you would like to be. The last thing about that is you have to decide if you can accept the amount and the number of rejections that you're going to receive in order to pursue a traditional contract. When you get like your 14th rejecting, you're like, I'm done. I can't do this. But I really, you know, implore people to stick to it because you hear all these stories about the J.K. Rowlings and the James Pattersons who um, suffered the rejection and are better for it. But I feel like, you know, later generations, even my generation, we don't quite have the stick to itiveness that we need in order to last. And that just hurts you. It could come, the deal could come, but are you willing to wait? Ooh, that was like 20 consecutive uh, value <laughs> bombs back to back. And when you were saying that, it just made me think like when I was a little kid, I always wanted to stay up late to like 11 and like eat ice cream every day. 
And when I finally moved out of my parents, I was like, yes, I can do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. Then it's like, oh, wait, I have to pay bills. And now I have yes. all these other responsibilities. <laughs> and if you guys listening see how I'm going with that analogy, it's kind of like, like Tracy was saying, when you're self-publishing, and basically it all falls, everything devolves onto you versus I actually had um, in last week's episode, a, a British author, she's uh, traditionally published as well. And she was kind of echoing the exact same thing that you were saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, like when you're traditionally published, there's a whole team behind you that's basically doing all, that's helping you with all the back end. You just pretty much, I don't want to say you just sit back, but you know, you're still writing. Right, it takes right. a lot of pressure off of you, but that was definitely a lot of uh, you know good points to consider. And like you said, it really depends on what your individual goals are, uh, which, which path, whether traditional or self-publishing uh, might be right uh, for you. And the thing thing about the team is that they are a knowledgeable team. They have million dollar books, you know, out there. You can have a team, but what what kind of knowledge are they working with is a whole different thing. You have to get the right people and those people might not be, you know, available to you or in your might not be affordable. So that's the other thing. You can have a team, but you know, how good is it? You're only as good as the team as a whole, not just working by yourself in the dark, you know, with the the lights get cut off and you're trying to hold your flashlight so you can uh, write this, these books. So definitely you have to think about all of that. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so again, I was looking as I was uh, snooping on your uh, Amazon profile, uh, you've got all of your books have dozens and dozens of mostly overwhelmingly positive reviews. So clearly, you know, you're doing something right uh, with with your stories. So I guess I kind of wanted to ask you, uh, switching gears a little bit, uh, putting on our self-published author hats right now, uh, every time you uh, launch a book, or how about just the most recent book that you launched, could you walk me through like what sort of specifically what pre-launch activities that you do uh, to build anticipation? Sure. I do a lot on Instagram. Um, I love Instagram during the pandemic. I really had the time and space uh, to learn how to properly run Instagram ads. Um, You know, covers really helped too. I had a good looking guy on a couple of my covers. I think that that is what also enticed people. But you know, I, it's okay. I just want to tell people it's okay to be not that great at your launch. Because remember, that is just one third of the segments of you're going to that you're going to have of your book life there is the pre-launch there is launch and then to me there's post-launch which is like hold it and maintain it right so you do a lot of effort and you never know that is so subjective how that those efforts are going to pan out at the end of the day, it's really about longevity and it's really about scale. So I would say that I'm not even that great at my launch. What I try to do daily is I try to do one activity towards promotion of my book. Either I post an excerpt, I you know promote an old podcast that I was on, I send out a press release. That's one thing people have really um, fallen down on is that we don't use press releases anymore. But there are still news outlets and there are online editions of those news that still need content. And so people really miss out on some of the, what I call analog ways of promoting. I still send postcards to people. A lot of people don't want to pay for mailing and stamps. I send out a print newsletter, maybe every couple of years, nobody does print anymore. Um, But you know, you have to really think outside the box because the other reason I do print is because I have older readers. 
and they're not always on Facebook and Instagram. They want a card or they want a newsletter like, oh, let me see what Tracy's up to. They like getting something that's not a bill. And so, you know, sometimes you like seeing um, people and you like to interact with them. I have people that still write me physical letters. You know, and people that I used to get letters from men in jail, they at that time, you know, 20 years ago, I don't respond because my mentor friend told me not to, even though I really wanted to. Um, but they, um, you know, people are in different mediums and you have to really meet them. But what I would say is try to come up with a list of 20 to 30 things that you can do to launch. That would include the press release. Pinterest is a really great place to find content ideas. There are people that have a tons of beautiful, colorful calendars, and they tell you what you can do each day to promote whatever you're promoting, whether it's a book, whether it's a planner, whatever you're promoting, they have a thing that you can do each day. And I try to do that. I fall down by day 15. But hey, I, I made an effort to do something to just to keep your book elevated. And your long-term strategy is more important than your launch strategy. You know, there was two uh, really important things that I just kind of wanted to circle back and reiterate on what you said. Like you had mentioned uh, sending out letters. I think a, a really good point that I took away from what you just said is that uh, knowing your audience and like you said, because you the, based off the age, the demographic, like for an author who's doing, say, like YA, that is young adult books, you might want to be doing more TikTok, for example, and you're probably Definitely. not going to, you know, be sending out letters. I thought that was like a, a really, a really important point that you had made there. And the other important point was you said have sexy men on the covers because yeah. <laughs> apparently that works as well. So Definitely. if you're Especially listening, taking notes, <laughs> find out, do deep research on the demographics of your audience. And have attractive people on your covers. <laughs> Very important, yes. And even uh, though you have, you may have a YA audience, a young adult audience, there's still, I would say you could send them a little, um, a lot of people are coming up with these like avatars, like a character, or it depends, like if you have monsters or you have, I'm thinking of the beasts, because I'm listening to this um, lady online, uh, she wrote the beasts um something beasts and something monsters but i will um get it so if you have show notes you can put it in there but awesome. just a little character thing that she might have created on canva you can make it into a tattoo and all the young people would love like a water-based tattoo something you can rinse off not something your parents will be mad at you and then mad at the author for but um you can get you know there are other little gimmicky things that you can do to reach that audience that may involve uh, sending them something in the mail because then they can, uh, the young people are so good at filming their box openings, you know, the unboxing. So you can get them all to do that. And that would even further promote your brand because they're all excited about getting that little envelope and putting on that little tattoo. So um, that's something also to think about. And that's something I'm going to have at a launch party, which is another idea. You can have a launch party. I had a launch party. I invited everybody that I I wanted to have at least 100 people at my launch party. So I invited double what I wanted. I invited 200 people and 100 people really did show up. And it was awesome. And I also did a little skit of my um, opening chapter where I hired actors to act out the first chapter. So that was so fun. And I'm getting ready to do another party, hopefully this year, but we'll see. Um, and, you know, so there's so many things you could do. Think outside the box.
launch parties. That's actually a, that's actually a pretty good idea. So now that you mentioned that, so besides the skit, uh, what else did you do um, at your launch party? Out of curiosity. I'm kind of curious about that. Yeah, so I did a reading, and I also revealed my book trailer. So I would release things like kind of like a, um, you know, like this is what's going to be the, at the launch party. You don't tell everybody everything that's going to happen in one thing. You drag it out. I'm going to have my launch party. I'm going to have the book trailer, which is like a mini movie for the book. I'm going to have a skit or a play featuring uh, my cousin who was really good looking, another good looking man to put on there. He's coming. He's the villain. He'll be in the, he'll be in the skit. I did a reading, but then we ate and then, you know, everybody went, went home. I mean, you don't have to make it a, a huge affair. People are coming out of curiosity and also to support you. So those three little things, you know, food, uh, the skit or play and, um, you know, the, the reading, you know, and that's it. And answer questions, take questions. Oh, and then the signing, the signing can take anywhere from 30 to, you know, an hour or 90 minutes. So at the end of all of that, you know, now it's time to sign books. Um, and so that was really, really fun to do that. And that was only about a three hour party. It can certainly be less. You can have a reception. Um, if you don't have much money, you know, give people some cheese and crackers and, um, you know, some, some Sprite and send them on their merry way. Like here, this is my book. You know, I don't have a lot of money to put back into this big party feeding y'all, but, um, let's fellowship and have fun and just, you know, it's really for the camaraderie. You shouldn't break the bank and you don't want to, you know, you want to have the books there for people to sign. Wow. Awesome. Book launch. I'm going to write, I'm going to write that down. I think that's a good idea for a future episode of the show. So, um, I also believe that in addition as a writer and a disability advocate, that you also work as a writing coach. So I'm a copy editor and writing consultant, which is totally different and distinct than an actual writing coach. Now there's, I feel that there's kind of like almost this like a perception that writing is something like a solitary activity uh, that writers do uh, while drinking like an obscene amount of daiquiris like Ernest Hemingway used to. So I was wanted to know if you could uh, explain to the audience who might not be that familiar uh, with writing, what a writing coach is. Could you uh, explain a little bit what you do for coach, what a coach actually does and what it is that you specifically do with your clients? Sure, sure. What I do for my clients, it really depends on their needs, but obviously they want to publish a book. That's the first goal to have. But um, I walk them through the process. So it really depends on what they come. Somebody may have a partial manuscript. They're not sure which way to go. They may be stuck. So I can help people get unstuck by reading through it and saying, here's some things that you might think about adding. Um, I can help people who have a finished book, but isn't quite sure how to get it up on Amazon. I just finished working with my first children's book author. Her book is out and she is doing phenomenally well. I am so proud of her. But that took a while um, just working with her schedule and mine to get that book done. She had the book. She had all the text. I helped her hire a Fiverr designer, vetting them, getting her the preliminary illustrations. Um, I helped her with getting the ISBN. Just kind of, you know, there's light support and then there's heavy support. And also I'm a coach. So I'm motivating them, give them resources and tools. Like I'm stuck. 
I have writer's block or I'm not sure where this story needs to go. I'm not sure what's missing. Even somewhat of a developmental editor too, I am doing for people. So we just work on a month by month. You can do a quarter. You could do just a few months at a time. You could do just hourly rates um, just to get your book polished and get it ready to fit in the market, giving feedback on cover design. So really it's kind of tailored to them, whatever they need and whatever stage they are. So I help people get unstuck, finish the book, and then also help people publish a book after they have a solid edit. And I recommend editors. I have a list of people that I use. I'm going to add you to the list, right? And I have other um, people to do cover design. You know, people aren't quite sure. And they also, I'm like your own beta reader tester kind of built in, even though you are paying me, you know, when they're paying you too, you're still giving your honest feedback on um, how the book is flowing, if it needs a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, so those things are important to, uh, to help people understand and really have a solid book, not have a mess and not waste so much money. I think that's the main thing I do for people. You don't want to spend time finding all these resources only to find that they don't work or they have, you know, five better business bureau ratings that are, you know, an F or a D, you know, so you want to um, have someone who's knowledgeable in the industry and who can tell you where to go and how to do it. Right. That definitely makes a lot of sense, especially with uh, your experience uh, writing as well, that you can definitely, like you just mentioned, uh, help them avoid a lot of common mistakes and pitfalls and basically shorten, you know, that learning curve there for mm -hmm. them. And uh, definitely, uh, you know, before before the episode ends, I would like to get uh, like your contact information for anyone who would like to, you know, maybe contact you for potential coaching in the future. Um, so. I guess my next question is sticking with uh, writing coaching. Uh, what would you say, uh, based off the clients that uh, you've worked with, what would you say are so, like one or two of the most common challenges or sticking points that you constantly see popping up uh, when, when a novel is being written and how have you advised your uh, clients on how to overcome those particular uh, common sticking points and challenges? Yeah, I just really ask people to submerge themselves in learning. Um, you know, it's one thing for me to help them with one book, but if they really aren't taking notes or they don't want to, um, you know, that's a different thing. I know that another book is going to come. In fact, I told one of my clients, I said, you just have to get this one book out the way. Then you're going to have another idea for another book. And he just totally said, no, that's not going to happen. Um, this book was exhausting. It was a lot of work. And sure enough, he wrote me, you know, a couple months ago saying, I have another idea for a book, um, you know, and it just comes. So just be prepared for more ideas to come. Um, getting past the sticking points, I would just say that I don't think people really take the time to submerse themselves in learning. Um, some of the basic questions writers ask about copyright, and I'm just thinking this has got to be common knowledge, right? I mean, you want to pay for a lawyer at a hundred to three hundred dollars an hour, or you want to pay this forty-five dollars to copyright your work and protect yourself? It's some of these things to me because I've been doing it so long seem like a no-brainer. But I will also say that when I entered the writing contest, I was so scared that I didn't know what I was doing that I just made myself learn and talk to and listen to and watch YouTube a lot on everything I could about writing. And so, you know, I realized that you can hire all the people in the world, but if you're not going to take time with your own craft, you know, it'll be for naught. 
they'll be, you know, you will, the second time around, you should be able to do it. You've learned from Tracy, you've learned from Ray, you watch YouTube videos, you should find success and it should be easier. But for those that aren't paying attention, it'll just be just as hard, just as much work, and you could make more mistakes. So I just encourage people to really get out there and learn. Information from writers is so free and it's so plentiful. You know, and so I think that there's no reason you can't just become more knowledgeable on your own if you take the time. Even if you're washing dishes or driving, you can be listening to a writing podcast that will give you just just tons and tons of insight. Yep. And if you're going to listen to a writing podcast, be sure that you are subscribed to the Pen to Profit podcast. So you can uh, listen to all of our episodes while you're doing your dishes or driving every Tuesday morning at 8.30 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, just That's a suggestion. Right. Absolutely. Good suggestion. <laughs> yeah. And I totally agree with uh, what you were saying there, Tracy. I, I always say on pretty much every episode, it's important to, uh, as I say, kind of like a student's mind and always constantly uh, be learning, especially when it comes to like social media, because algorithms change, you know, things are changing all the time. And to kind of like, I also like be a little, be humble, understand that you don't know everything and, you know, and be receptive to trying to learn more and, you know, and get feedback. And like you mentioned, like really important to try to, you know, learn things on your own as well, <laughs> YouTube, university, podcasts, etc. Um, So I wanted to switch gears a little bit. And so, Based off of uh, your extensive knowledge with almost 20 plus books that you've released and written, uh, what would you say are some, self, are some effective self-editing techniques uh, that a writer could use before sending their work to a professional editor like me? Yeah, you know, I would just recommend everybody use shorter sentences. <laughs> you know, the run on sentence is like the bane of my own personal experience. And but, you know, all jokes aside, you should, um, you know, you should break things up to make them more concise. The, but the number one tip I have is to read aloud. You know, read your work aloud. Listen to your own voice. Um, because if you are stumbling and you are like, you know, just kind of like trying to get through this sentence, something is wrong with that sentence. This is not hard. You know, just read aloud. The other thing you can do is you really don't want to read aloud is you can, if you have Microsoft or even Google, which is free, Google's free, um, you can have a bot read your work for you. Um, in fact, that is a lazy editor technique because I use a bot to read my work when I just feel like I can't get into the story. And as soon as that bot messes up, I might call her a name like, look, look here, you messed up my work. And, you know, and I'm thinking like she messed up my work because that's what your work sounds like. So you messed up your work. Right. So um, so using that artificial intelligence, um, I call it artificial intelligence light because it's not really it's not doing anything for you except reading. It's not doing any text for you. Um, so I think that, you know, read aloud use shorter sentences and just really go through um, and cut out words. If it can sound just as good without the other and or the or or those some of those really small words, then um, you can take it out. If it still works and it still sounds right without all these extraneous you know words, it can work and you should try that. Try to write shorter. The last thing is, is to use a thesaurus. 
I have thesaurus.com open up every time I am writing, or I can ask my device, A-L-E-X-A, who I can't say, or they'll start talking to me. Um, I ask her to give me a word, another word for blah, blah, blah. So use even again, artificial intelligence, use that. Um, and I ask for the meanings and I ask for definitions. And sometimes I'll have dictionary.com open so I can find a better word, a more descriptive word for what I'm trying to say. So that's one thing that you can do. Well, those are, those are some really good tips. And I definitely wanted to echo the, the very first one, the, the reading aloud. I've written about it probably like 20 times on my blog. It, it's one of the simplest things that you could do. And it'll definitely help you catch a lot of, like you said, uh, awkward sentences, long sentences, uh, even just like general typos that uh, you may have made before you actually send it off before you send your manuscript off to like a proofreader or editor. So if you only get one takeaway from this episode, read your manuscript aloud, and that'll save you a whole lot of time. So uh, going back to uh, when I was spending my extensive time uh, snooping on your Amazon page, I see that it says that you are a member of the Romance Writers Association and the Nonfiction Book Writers Association. So I guess what I wanted to ask you was, could you explain to the audience why you chose to join uh, those particular writing organizations and in what specific tangible ways would you say that uh, you've benefited from being a member in either of them or both of them? Yeah, definitely. When I did, one of the things we talked about earlier is that, you know, writing is so solitary. You do it alone unless you have a writing partner, um, but you do write alone mostly. Um, but these organizations provide community. They have local chapters often so that you can go and meet up with people. The world is back out, you know, full throttle now. Get to the Barnes and Noble, get to the library and meet up with people who are also in the industry who have shared goals because they can cheer you on. They can make the alone time not seem so alone if you have check-ins. I have a writing sprint partner. We meet up and we do sprints. And um, you know, at the end of every sprint, we share word counts. You don't have to, this is just another layer. But if they wrote like 800 and you wrote 500, you're like, okay, the next 25 minutes it's on. I'm gonna write 900, you know? So just a little bit of healthy competitiveness can really motivate you to the finish line. But some of the other things that you get uh, besides community from writer organizations is discounts on software. Um, I use ProWritingAid um, and that is something you can put your book in and it'll give you like a little report on how your book sounds, how your fiction or nonfiction sounds, and also find uh, some of the errors that Word doesn't find. So discounts on organizations, uh, memberships, scholarships to some of the conferences. I've been in receipt of those. Those conference fees you know, on top of the hotel, the airfare or the ground transit, the lodging, all of that stuff can really add up. So if you, if a good organization has good stewardship, they will have scholarships available for people who really need them. You'll have to write something, of course, and you have to make some kind of justification. But some of them have been nothing more than a couple paragraphs to say, look, I can't afford this, but I really want to come. Um, so just some of those things, you know, and also, if you want a traditional contract, networking, that is probably a major thing. You can't, you can get your foot in the door to a major top five publishing house by going to these conferences, 
pitching your book during a pitch session. And then, you know, all of a sudden you've met your editor, you've met your agent at an event that was hosted by these conferences. So there are many, many more reasons than those, but I would say that those are the top ones. It's just access to industry leaders, you know, the networking, um, some of those organizations were in contests, like I said, and then they have discounts and then just the community. You, I would say, um, during November, which is National Novel Writing Month, I wrote uh, 50,000 words in 13 days. And I've never written that fast. Um, so I'm beat, I'm, you know, one nano. Um, you don't get anything for winning except a certificate, which is okay, fine. But um, I remember documenting some of the things that caused me to write so fast. One of those was staying in the story and making sure I look at it every day. But the second thing was going to the writing meetups that they have, which they also have virtually. I didn't go a single way outside the, you know, the house door, but I went to about three to five um, of the meetups that they have for the various communities. And then they also have the local meetups and they have regional leaders. There's a, you know, Virginia leader for your city and state and all that, but just that camaraderie, just that community was really helpful and helped me to write so much. So it wasn't just that I was motivated for 13 days. It was just, you know, I took advantage of the resources that NaNoWriMo is also a community too. That is, that was a lot of compelling reasons. I was curious, like, um, what do the, are these groups free or do you have to pay like a, like membership dues periodically? And if you do, so, pay, like how much are they? Approximately? Well, the associations definitely do cost, you know, you have membership dues. Uh, Romance Writers of Association is $99 a year. And then if you want to join your local chapter, you have to be a member of the national one, but those local chapter fees are only like 35 to $45. There's not a local chapter that's over $50 for the year. Um, I forget how much the National Fiction Authors Association is. Um, it's probably around 200 and something. It's a little bit bigger, several thousand members. And so they have a lot of workshops and things like that. But in NaNoWriMo, the meetups were free. It was just on Zoom or even if you went to the, um, most of them met at the library or at the local bookstore. You know, you just pay to be in the cafe by getting a coffee or getting a pastry or something. But they, those spaces want people to come in because you'll buy a book probably on the way out. But it's always free for those. You just show up and you just come and then you start meeting people who are in your industry, who write what you write. And, you know, you can start to create your own meetings in your own smaller communities online and meet more regularly. Wow. I, and I would definitely, and if you're someone who's listening right now and, you know, you're kind of on the fence thinking that, uh, you don't really want to pay the dues, uh, I would argue talking about roughly what equates to like nine to $10 a month, you probably spend more on Starbucks, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in any given week than you do on that. Uh, it's definitely based on what Trey's been saying. It's a very, it's a very big investment that you can make, you know, in yourself as a writer and for your uh, personal and professional development. Uh, you know, like that old saying that goes, if you want to, I'm probably going to butcher it because I always do. Because every time someone mentions writing associations, I always try to get it right. If you want to go fast, you go alone. But if you want to go far, go with others. Yes, I got it right this time. Yay, five times to get it right. But yeah, that's definitely well, what is this? There's that like that community, uh, that education, that networking. It's definitely 
uh, worth the investment. And I do believe that depending on what type of genre of writing you're doing, if you don't know uh, if there are associations, it's real simple to find one. If you just go to Google or your favorite search engine and just type in writing organization or writing association plus whatever your genre is, you're going to and it'll, they'll pop right up, whether it definitely, be uh, sci-fi, horror. Uh, I know there's one for uh, Christian romance writers. I actually know a bunch of these because I actually run advertisements with a lot of them uh, directly to their writers because I work with writers. So it makes yeah. sense to go where, where my people are. If I want to catch yeah, fish, I go to the lake, right? So, mm-hmm. so yeah, definitely. There's the Association uh, of Christian Fiction Writers. Yes. They're sisters in crime, women who write. Um, and they have some men, so don't let it deter you that if it seems like it's a woman-only organization, there's always a few um, males in there too. Um, and, you know, the other thing you mentioned that, you know, why am I in some of these romance writers? I'm in the romance industry, right? I So whatever, there's a thriller writers organization. There's other crime writers um, organizations. And so there's just really something for everyone. There's no reason whatever, there's anime, there's comic book writers. Whatever you're writing, um, you know, there is a group for that. And if it's not, which I doubt there is, but if there's not in one area, then that is incumbent upon you to start it. Somebody else in that town wants that group too. So you just have to hang out your shingle and say, you know, this is a group I'm going to be starting and, you know, just just start it and and just keep going. Exactly. Well, well, Tracy, you have dropped uh, so many value bombs today for the uh, Pen to Profit podcast audience. And so just to wrap up, I guess my last question today would be, um, where could people find out more about you, uh, your coaching services and your books? Definitely. They can visit my website. I'm at tracygarner.com. Tracy is with two E's, T-R-A-C-E-E, Garner, G-A-R-N-E-R.com. I'm also at Instagram and on Facebook, Tracy Lydia Garner, which is my full name. And uh, you can just Google me too. You can Google Tracy Lydia Garner and uh, all kinds of wonderful things will pop up, but mostly my books and how to find them and uh, the series that I have. I have two series out right now. I'm wrapping up another series. Well, not wrapping up. I'm actually starting a new series. And I did manage to create a fourth book in a current series that's already out. So I am just continuing to go forward. But TracyGarner.com is the best way to reach out. Right. And that will be down in the show notes at the bottom of this episode. And we are all wrapped up for today. Tracy, I wanted to thank you for your time and uh, blessing the audience here with uh, with all of your insights and your 20 plus years of experience uh, as a writer, a writing coach. And and to wrap it up today, I am Ray Evans, your host of the Pen to Profit podcast. And as we say around these parts, the pen is mightier than the sword. Unless you're in a sword fight, then you might want to reconsider your options. Have a great day, folks. Thanks for tuning in to the Pen to Profit podcast. If you've enjoyed hanging out with us today, swing by iTunes or your podcast app of choice and leave a rating and write a review. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button to get more of this grammar goulash delivered piping hot to your ear holes every week. And if you're looking for more tips, tricks, and free trainings that aren't available anywhere else, click the link in the show notes to join the Author Success Hub Facebook group.
It's one part mastermind group and one part creative writing workshop. Except you can attend in your pajamas without judgment. Plus, you'll be mixing it up with fellow authors who are all about that writing and profiting life. Until next time, keep putting pen to paper and turning those pages to profit. Ciao.